And please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And while you do, I'll remind you that we're going to be finishing our study of probably one of the most well-known, loved, famous passages in the Bible, but one that I think is often misunderstood. We are in a chapter where Jesus has told three parables, making one main point. If you remember, the Pharisees were grumbling. Jesus was welcoming and eating the sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus told them a story about a shepherd who lost one of 99 sheep. And he went and searched for it. And the joy he had upon finding it and returning with it and calling his friends together to celebrate with him was reflective of the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And then he told them the story of the woman who lost one of her 10 drachmas or 10 coins and the joy she had in, in finding it and calling her friends together and rejoicing reflected the joy of heaven over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus told them the story, the parable of the prodigal son as it's known. And again, we saw last week God's gracious joy in receiving and forgiving repentant sinners. But the reason why I think this parable is often misunderstood is who is Jesus speaking to in chapter 15? Who is he addressing? Who, who is he instructing? We're, we're told that um, in verse 3. He told them this parable. Who's the them? Pharisees. These three parables are given not directly to the disciples, but to the Pharisees. In response to their grumbling complaint, that Jesus was hobnobbing with sinners and tax collectors. So what lesson does Jesus want them to learn? Well, we've seen the first main lesson. Let me show you, Jesus, in effect, says God's perspective, God's joy, God's exuberant rejoicing over just one sinner who repents. But there's a new character who shows up in the third parable. Um, we have all the elements in the first two parables in the third. We have joy, we have the joy of heaven seen in the joy of the Father who throws the celebration, who calls for the um, animal to be slaughtered. We have a sinner who repents, pictured first as the sheep that is found, the coin that is found, and then the younger son who repents. But now we're introduced to a third character. And I would suggest to you that this third character, the older brother, is really the primary point Jesus is trying to make. After showing them the beauty of heaven's perspective, of God's joy, we got a stark contrast. I was listening to a preacher earlier this morning, actually, who made the comment that frequently when we read the Bible, we read it like a yearbook. And you know when you get your yearbook, what do you do? You flip to all the pages that you're on. And you flip to all the comments that people wrote about you. You're trying to find you in the yearbook. And we read this story and we think, the prodigal, that's me, maybe. If you're, if you're a Christian, then to some degree that is you. But I want to encourage you as we study this morning the father and the older brother, that maybe, just maybe, the older brother is me. The older brother is you. Maybe we do that. I think that's the primary point Jesus is trying to show the Pharisees, that in contrast to heaven's joy and heaven's perspective, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, and I think to us, this, this is what you can be like. This is what you are like. So let's, let's begin by reading this parable in its entirety, Luke 15, 11 to 32, and then I just want to encourage you for the next 40 minutes or so to, to take a seat, an uncomfortable seat admittedly, 
in the seat of the older brother and see if anything sticks, see if anything clicks, see if this indicts us as well. I think if we're honest, we'll see that it does. Luke 15, 11 through 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided this property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And while he had spent every, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead. And he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he's called one of the servants and asked them what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you filled, killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The point of this parable is to show us heaven's response. First, heaven's joy to a repentant sinner. We looked at that last week. The, The grace lavished and overflowing on this undeserving prodigal how the father relates to him, but now we're gonna see how the father relates to the elder brother. And this, this really is how Jesus is reaching out to the Pharisees. And you'll remember I said in the previous weeks that Jesus is granting the Pharisees assumptions both about themselves and about these sinners. That, that in the first parable, he says in verse seven that heaven has more joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, there are no such people. 
But Jesus is granting the Pharisees their own self-evaluation, even if he's saying you are who you think you are, even if you are righteous. Let me show you how right, fitting, and good it is for heaven to rejoice over one sinner who repents. Likewise, he does not resolve the tension. He does not resolve the Pharisees' complaint by saying, well, really, these people are not as bad as you think they are. We saw last week how he cast the younger brother in the worst possible light, basically saying to his father, hurry up and die. I've been waiting too long. Give me my stuff. I want nothing to do with you. I'm going to liquidate it. I'm going to leave you with your stuff and go and enjoy it. Now, Jesus' resolution of the tension is not by saying to the Pharisees, no, 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 you've, you've overemphasized the sin of these people. Rather, his resolution to the tension is, ah, yes, they're wicked sinners, but they are repentant sinners. And that makes all the difference. But now we're going to see that maybe they're not who they think they are. And even if they are, it's ugly. It's evil. So we're going to look at the father and the elder brother as the story develops over three points, and then five, five applications, five observations for us to glean from this. So first, the elder brother's anger. The elder brother's anger, verses 25 through 28a. So the story left with the father calling for a celebration. It's immediate, it's spur of the moment, it's urgent, we gotta hurry. And I think that might be why the older brother isn't sent for. It certainly seems like it was an oversight, not intentional, because when the father becomes aware that the older brother doesn't go in, he comes out to him. He certainly wants him there. But because this happens suddenly, the older brother is not aware of this. He returns from the field, and he hears something as he comes near. He hears singing, and he hears dancing. And so he calls one of the servants and he asks him what's going on. He inquires about this unexpected celebration. And then we get the summary of what we saw last week. The servant said to him, verse 27, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So we get the crucial elements. The brother has returned and the father welcomed, received him and is now celebrating. Now notice and this is, this is significant because the brother is going to challenge us later. The servant casts us in the right categories. He's your brother has returned, and your father has done this. So he learns what has happened, and then he becomes angry and would not join in the celebration. Now here we've got the lineup with the Pharisees. This is pretty much identical. Lines up with what they were doing in the first two verses of Luke 15. Look at Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, eats with them. They clearly aren't willing to join in. They don't want any part of this. And so the older brother here refuses to go in. There's a party going on. There's singing. There's dancing. There's a slaughtered um, cow. He steadfastly remains outside. There's irony here. He was, he was the one that stayed behind at home. Now he's the outsider. He's the one standing outside. He's the one in a broken relationship. So then we move from the elder brother's anger to the elder brother's accusation. The older brother's accusation. And notice the father's heart of restoration. We, we see it so clearly in the younger son. 
The father's looking for him, the father runs to him. But the father here somehow learns that his older son is outside. He's, he's angry, he's petulant, he won't come in. But what does the father do? He's, he's presiding over this feast. This is his feast, but what does he do? He humbles himself and he goes out. And what does the text say? The father came out and entreated him. This father wants full reconciliation with both of his sons. And the father is active in creating that reconciliation. Don't miss this. We, we talked about how we went from one in a hundred to one in ten, and not to one in two, but two of two. We learn now that both of this man's sons are lost. Both of this man's sons need reconciliation, and the father is aggressive and active in reconciling with both of them. He doesn't remain on the inside and say, well, if he doesn't want to come in, well, that's his business. He goes out side of the celebration and entreats his older son. And the son, even though the father has humbled himself, the father's made the move of reconciliation. He's advanced peace. He's saying, come, come celebrate. He then makes his accusation. And again, further demonstration that his relationship is broken. He is now going to accuse his father. We can sort of understand to some degree him being angry with the younger brother. But he actually makes his charge to the father. And he says, look, these many years I have served you, literally been a slave for you. Last week when I put that word slave in the insert, I was thinking of it from here. This is actually the only occurrence in the text of the verbal form. I've slaved away from you, for you, these many years, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So what does he do? He recounts his faithfulness and service to his father. All right? And in contrast to that, what the, the argument is implied, right? Here's what I've done, and I didn't even get a goat. And here's what he did, and he gets this big party. He's, he's also slightly throwing a pity party here. I mean, the shifting from a cow to a goat is, is really trying to emphasize the father's stinginess. You, you couldn't even give me a goat, he's saying. You throw this lavish party for, for my, this son of yours, but you can't even be, be bothered to give me a goat to celebrate with my friends. You see, point C, he despises his brother for his actions. Notice how he distances himself. The servant says, your brother. The father, a little later in verse 32, for this, your brother. The, the servants understand this is your brother. The father understands this is your brother. The, the older brother, <laughs> he's no brother of mine. This is that son of yours. He's distancing himself. I despise him. He's your son. You don't recognize him as his brother. And ultimately, what's going on here? Ultimately, he, is, he accuses his father of injustice. That's the root of the complaint. The root of the complaint is there is an inappropriate response to me and to him. I, on the one hand, have slaved away from you for years. I've never disobeyed you. I've been faithful. I've worked hard day in and day out. What do I get? Zilch. This son of yours wastes our family property, sells our land, liquidates it, drags our family name through the mud. 
because they are aware of what he was doing. This must have been notorious. And when he comes back, you do this for him. That is unjust. That's not fair. You see, generosity to a bankrupt but repentant prodigal was to him not an expression of his undeserved wealth as the heir of all the father had, but the squandering of hard-earned money. Or let me put the, uh, the older brother's complaint a little clearer, because I, I want us not to write this off too easily. I want us to realize that, if we're honest, I think we all can sympathize with the older brother in the right light. This is what David Gooding says. If his brother could go off, live a dissolute life, bring disgrace on the family, waste all his money and opportunities, and then come home, make some kind of profession of repentance, and immediately be received, made a fuss of, treated as if nothing had happened, indeed treated better than he had been before, then all this put a premium on sin and evil living. It made a mockery of all the long years of work that he himself had put in on the farm, serving his father like a slave. If that was his father's idea of forgiveness, of saving the lost, he wanted nothing to do with it. That's, that's the position of the older brother. To quote Mark Twain, he was a good man, but he was the worst type. He was a good man in the worst sense of the word. Man, I bungled that. Mark Twain's quote, he was a good man in the worst sense of the word. So that's the complaint. And I think if we're honest, we can recognize some part of us can resonate with that. So I want you to notice the father's answer. We've got the elder brother's anger, his accusation, now the father's anger. And again, the father could be just in saying to the older brother, how, how dare you talk to me like that? But I want you to notice the grace, not just to the younger brother, but to the older brother. It's the same grace Jesus is showing the Pharisees here. I'd mentioned before, he could rightly tear into them. And in other places, he does. Who do you, who do you think you are? How dare you sit in judgment on me? You whitewashed. He doesn't do that here. He shows them the beauty of heaven's vantage point and by contrast what they're looking like. And, and here, just as the father is reaching out to the older brother, Jesus, in by the very act of telling this parable, is doing the same thing to them. The father speaks gentle, peacemaking words. Son, he says, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. What does he do? He reminds his son of what he does and has had. Whereas for the previous time, however long it took the prodigal to go away, he was absent from his father's household, absent from his father. The older brother all this time has had his father in fellowship. And we've seen what a wonderful, loving, gracious father this is. The older brother has had him day in and day out in fellowship and in company. He says to the older brother, you've, you've had me. Which indicates the older brother also doesn't really value his relationship with his father. What else? All the father has is his. You're going to inherit all of this. <laughs> You're going to inherit all of this. Now, maybe the older brother was thinking, well, not if you keep giving him stuff, you're dwindling away my inheritance. 
But the point is, and, and we see from this parable, that this man is wealthy enough to have multiple servants, fields that need overseeing. This is a wealthy household. One bull, one ring, one cloak, one pair of shoes is not going to destroy the inheritance of the elder brother. And in contrast to that, he responds to the brother's implied rebuke. It is not fitting, it is not just, by saying it was fitting, or literally it is necessary to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. And that's the heart of Jesus' response to the Pharisees. These people are your brothers. They're your fellow Israelites. They're fellow humans. And they were dead and they're alive now. They're coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. And it is right for me, Jesus is saying, as God's son, as God's prophet, as God's Messiah, to welcome them sharing in my Father's joy. That, that's, that's the point of the parable, to show them the ugliness of the older brother. Now, I suggested at the beginning that I think we, we can be guilty of the older brother syndrome. That phrase, older brother syndrome, um, Vodi Bakum, who's a, a faithful pastor I've benefited from in talking about this, refers to that, and I thought it was helpful that we, I think, do this. I think we are given to this, and rather than read this story and think about those awful people who do that, I'd encourage us, for whatever time we have left, to consider are we those people that do that? And from this story, this parable, I want to suggest there are five symptoms of elder brother syndrome. Five symptoms of elder brother syndrome. Five ways we can indicate that perhaps this is what's going on in our hearts because we want to celebrate God's grace. We want to be about the Great Commission about people being saved. And yet, and yet, let's dive in. First symptom of elder brother syndrome. We recount our works and our brother's sins. We recount our works and our brother's sins. Have you ever catch yourself listing up the things you do, like the older brother here? Have you ever catch yourself thinking of all the faithfulness, your church attendance, your ministry, your helping in Awana? You recount those to yourself, to God, to others, in your own heart, you're keeping track. And conversely, you're not keeping track of the faithfulness of those around you. You're not thinking about and all of Anna's faithfulness and all of Sarah's faithfulness. If you're keeping a track of your brothers and sisters, it's their wrongs. You're not keeping track of your, this is exactly the inverse of what should be going on. Our sins should be big in our own eyes. And we should be focusing with a loving eye of hoping all things, believing all things, and the good in others. It's the exact opposite. You're keeping track of a record of your service, and you're keeping track of your brother's sins. This is exactly, turn over to Luke 18. Jesus zeroes in on this even more um, focusedly in, in Luke 18 with the uh, verse 9, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, 
Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The first symptom of of older brother syndrome is when you catch yourself keeping a record, a long list of all other people's failings, the wrongs they do, and the only list you keep of yourself is your accomplishments. I read my Bible every day. I go to church regularly. I help out. I chip in. I've been faithful. I'm a good boy or girl. Second, that then leads to why. What does that reveal? If you're keeping a record of those things, it's because we base our relationship to our Father on works. That, that's the implicit assumption. You want to you zero in on the older brother's syndrome in the simplicity, it's this. The older brother relates to his father according to works, according to debt. I've slaved away for you. Therefore, what do I deserve? He hasn't. Therefore, what does he deserve? You've mixed up the payments. The party should be for me, not for him. It's it's a works relationship. It's a tit for tat. The reason why this is so ugly is because that's at the heart of this, is a works relationship with God. The Pharisees thought they were the good guys. The Pharisees thought they were the ones who didn't need repentance. The Pharisees were the ones who kept the law, who did the rules. They were the faithful ones. Israel had almost fallen away, and they had brought the the Ten Commandments back to the schools. They had brought it back to the culture. They brought Israel back on course. They were looking for a, a, a pat on the back. Good job. I'll take it from here when the Messiah came. And they were confounded by God's grace to these wicked people, tax collectors, sinners, because they and because we at times base our relationship to our Father on our works. It's really simple. I've worked for you. You owe me, God. That's the logic. Consequently, therefore, our Father's grace angers us. Our Father's grace can anger us. Now again, we would think, no, no, I don't get angry at grace. We love grace. We sing about grace. Amazing grace, right? We're the people of grace. Let me give you some tests. Let's see. How do you, how do I respond when something you want, that you've worked for, someone else gets? You rejoice? You grumble. I'll give you some tough examples. The the couple who's been trying to get pregnant for years, they've been faithful, hardworking, good Christians. And then this young, unwed teen who doesn't even want a baby gets pregnant. Where's the justice in that? God, you owe me. I've kept the rules. I've been good. What's up with that? Or the single person yearning for marriage, devoted to purity and walking in faithfulness. They've, they've been faithful. It's been hard. And then their unbelieving friend gets married out of nowhere. What's up with that, God? Or do you rejoice? This good thing, God gave a gracious gift. His rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Or... At work, you've been wanting to make more money. You want to provide for your family. It's tough. It's hard. 
and you're, you've been faithful, and you've worked hard for your boss, and you've put in overtime, and you've broken your back, and, and here comes this new employee who sucks up to the right people, who flatters the right people, gets the promotion that you think you deserve, and you rejoice that this good thing has happened to this man, this grace has been given to an undeserving person, or you grumble. Or, and I'm shifting into this phase, you know, as parents, you want to see your kids achieve things, and it seems like some, some kids, math or sports come easily, and other kids, it's hard work. And you find out that so-and-so's kid got into what school? We didn't even get into our first three choices. And yeah, I know that some of that has to do with diligence and work, but we all know the people who are naturally gifted. It comes easily. They don't have to practice. They don't have to work hard. They show up and ace the test. They show up and hit the home run. Do we rejoice in God's good gifts and grace to them, or do we come embittered and grumble? All of this is evidence of older brother syndrome. Turn in your Bibles to, to Jonah. There is no Jonah 14, so just turn to Jonah 4. I don't know how that one got in there. I got past Daniel, but um, Daniel edits my inserts, so you can talk to him about that. Um, no, I put that one in there accidentally. So go to Jonah chapter 4. And in Jonah chapter 4, we see this clearly. And in, and in striking terms, we don't use, we read Jonah 4 and we think, oh, there's no way I'd ever say this. It's only because Jonah is self-aware enough to speak his mind clearly. We don't say that. We would never say, how dare you be gracious, God? Jonah will. But I'm just trying to show you that if, if those examples I gave you, and I could give you others, if you recognize within your own heart, I recognize within my heart the propensity to grumble, to get mad, to think, hey, well, God, what gives? We're doing the same thing Jonah's doing here. Now, Jonah hates the people of Nineveh. Why does he run from going to Nineveh? Is he afraid of persecution? No, he doesn't care about persecution. He's afraid God will be gracious to them. And he says as much. And he gets set up on the hillside and he gets his box of popcorn and he's waiting for the show, for the fire and brimstone to come down. 30 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown, right? But what happened? The people repented. And what happened? God was gracious. So pick up chapter four. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger, Bounding in steadfast love and relenting from in disaster. How dare you? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And there he's just putting into clear biblical categories, in plain speech, at least he has the honesty to admit it, I am mad at your grace. Your grace angers me. And I'd rather die than live in a world where you're gracious to people like that. Now, if we're honest, when we get angry, it's the same tree. This is the full-grown fruit. It's the same sapling growing up in our hearts. And I love God's anger to him. It's gentle, and yet it's firm. Do you do well to be angry? You have just caused Jonah to be angry. 
turn back to Luke. Does God's grace anger us? And of course, we go, no, no, we love grace. How's about when God's gracious to other people who don't deserve it? How about then? We still love it? Still love it? Or do we feel like God owes us? Have we bought into the prosperity gospel light? Where if you work hard and you're faithful and you keep the rules, you don't expect to be healthy and wealthy. We, we understand the full-on prosperity gospel is wrong, but life should be somewhat smooth. We shouldn't get the cancer. We shouldn't lose our jobs. And when we do, and it doesn't happen to other people, we say that's not fair. And it's an indication, working backwards, that we're relating to God on works, not grace. Next point. And this is because we have forgotten our own wealth of grace. What does the father remind the older brother of? What would we do well to be reminded of? Just how much grace we have. If you're a Christian here today, you have peace with God. You know God. He knows you, and he lives in you continually. Son, you are always with me. And when you die, you will be with him forever. And we're going to get mad because some little temporal grace was given to somebody else, not me, me of all people. What else is he reminded of? All that I have, he says, is yours. And we're reminded of the inheritance that we have. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul telling us that this light momentary affliction is not even worthy to compare with the glory that is to be revealed for us. And here's one of the points where the older brother has actually a stronger case than we do. The older brother could legitimately argue that in some sense the, the gift of the ring and the cloak and the shoes and the calf would deplete his own inheritance, but we can't say that, can we? We can't argue that God's gift of grace to some other person means there's now less grace in the reservoir for me. God's grace is boundless. It's never that because God's been good to someone else, there's less goodness for me. And we've forgotten what we have. We've forgotten our own wealth of grace. This gets back to um, Simon. Remember the Pharisee Jesus ate of this house? He was forgiven little, loves little. We forget the grace we've received, and we don't love the Father. We, we adopt a merit system. We adopt a, a works system with God where he owes us Notice the final thing here. Since we too want our Father's blessings apart from Him. It slipped out from the older brother, didn't it? He doesn't want a cow. He just wants a goat. But what does he want the goat for? To celebrate with his father? No. To celebrate with his friends. See, he too wants his Father's blessings. We too when we act this way, want God's blessings apart from him. It also slips in when he talks about how he's slaved away from his father. Does he view his service to his father as a joy, as a blessing? Father, I love overseeing and working alongside of you and managing your property. I love working for you. It's good to do something useful. It's good to help the family estate. No, I've been slaving away from you. 
And when you adopt a works righteousness system with God, you begrudge your work. You, you, you wouldn't work for free. You work for a paycheck. You work to get paid. God needs to pay me. He owes me. Right? You see, the older brother might look like he loves his father. He doesn't. The older brother might look like he's not any less of an idolater than the younger brother, but he's not. He just wants his father's praise and his father's stuff so he can spend it on his own desires as well. There's a final point here. The older brother ultimately doesn't even really exist. Remember, Jesus has been granting the Pharisees their assumption. Let's assume, he says, you are as good as you think you are. So the older brother can make the claim, I've always done what you wanted. I've always been faithful. But we know that that's not true. In other words, as ugly as the older brother is, and as ugly as his attitude is, not one of us is nearly as righteous as he is. Let that sink in. Which one of us wants to claim, Father, I have always done what you wanted. I've never disobeyed you. I've been working hard, slaving away at serving you. Not I. So what I'm saying is the ugliness of this picture grants that the Pharisees are that much more righteous than they actually are. And given the reality that none of us are like this, how much worse and uglier is it still when our hearts respond this way? So what can be done for older brothers and sisters like you and me? Well, in the moments or two left that we have before communion, I would just point you to the Father's exhortation to the Son. Remember, Jesus is not in this instance telling the story to condemn them, but to show them to open their eyes. Three, three things. One, recognize and own, if you see this in your heart, that this is real. It's wicked. It's ugly. To the degree that your heart and my heart is like this, our hearts are like the worst people in the New Testament, the people God is most angry with, the people Jesus has the consistently harshest words for, and the people who, if this tree goes to seed and dominates your heart, you're ultimately not a Christian. You're, you're a Pharisee. If this is what rules your heart, which is to say, don't tell yourself, well, it's okay. We're all older brothers at times. It's not a big deal. Deal with it. Let it get your attention to the degree that you identify and I identify with these, and I do. We need to actively pull up these weeds. We need to actively and zealously attack this. So how do we, how do, we do that? How do we fight back against older brother syndrome? Well, I think the Father's counsel is, is well taken. We need to meditate on what we do have, the graces we do have. Again, you know God. What's God's answer to the childless couple? You have me. What's God's answer to the single person? You have me. What's God's answer to the person who's barely getting by, wants a promotion? You have me. Is that enough? You're always with me, and you always will be with me. What's the other part of God's answer? Not only you have me and you'll be with me, you are an heir with Christ. You're going to inherit the universe and all of creation. You're going to reign and rule with Christ. Is that enough? Can you trust your Father's grace? And finally, I think the real test here is even though you long for these good blessings and someone else got them, and I, and I think there is room for legitimate sorrow. I'm not saying that just because someone else is getting a blessing and you didn't, 
That does not necessarily mean that you can't feel some pang, that the, the, the barren couple feels a sorrow when someone else as a child, but there needs to be a joy as well. Can you celebrate? Can you go in? The older brother wouldn't go in and celebrate. Can you? Single person, can you go to the wedding and rejoice with the person who's marrying? Can you go to the baby shower and rejoice? Even as you long for the same thing, and there's a legitimate sorrowing. Or do you become embittered and entitled? I think that's the, the challenge. Can we rejoice with those who rejoice? Can we rejoice with God's good gifts to others or only God's good gifts to us? Because I think if we would enter into those situations, we might find our hearts changing. And this is, this is ugly, ugly sin rooted in the denial of the gospel, rooted in a works righteousness rooted in a, a merit system where God owes us. And Jesus is gracious here. The Father is coming out and he is inviting the Son in. He is pleading with the Son and God is pleading with you and he is pleading with me to be reconciled with him, to join in the celebration, to join in the feast. We're about to have a meal here in a moment that celebrates not only our union with Christ, but our union with each other. So I'm going to close in prayer as we prepare now to transition and I just encourage you to to do that work in your heart so you can enter this table of fellowship with other sinners and tax collectors like me and everyone else in this room and share in God's joy. Oh, Lord God, we need grace. We need your grace that we might see and not blink and not look away from what we see in the mirror of your word, but that we would recognize our own corruption, our own older brotherness. Help us to hate it, Lord, not to make excuses for it, not to pardon it. But help us not to despair over it, but to turn and meditate on the grace we have in you, the fellowship and peace we have with you, the the riches of an inheritance we have with you, and let us begin to enter into the joy of grace for others. In Jesus' name, amen.